Galatians 5 is where we're going to be, as was already stated, so if you'd please turn there in your Bibles, we'll be in uh, Galatians 5 uh, primarily this morning. Galatians 5 and verse 24 says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I'm providentially fortunate this morning to be able to preach a, a sermon that references the crucifixion or a crucifixion. Uh, we just finished up with Easter and prior to that, the, 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 just the whole Passion Week. Our Good Friday service focused uh, primarily, entirely, on the crucifixion process and that sacrifice and what Jesus accomplished for us. And so those thoughts and that process is probably pretty fresh in most of our minds, having been the focus of the past two weeks uh, here at church services. And what you realize from that crucifixion process is that once a person went through that process and they endured the, the beatings and the torture and, and then the crucifixion itself, by the time they were done, they were completely devoid of life. That, that killed their life. That ended it. And that's what the crucifixion process was meant to do. It was meant to end life and punish that way. And Paul masterfully weaves that, that, whole, um, that whole idea, that whole picture of crucifixion into this chapter as he talks about denying life. And it's denying our lives in the flesh. Now, the point he makes is very clear. The one who belongs to Jesus, the Christ, has crucified his flesh with its passions and its desires. Uh, that flesh is to be crucified and denied in that person. As a Christian, your flesh has been brought to trial. It's been found lacking of any production of anything that is good and righteous. It has been condemned to death, it's, and it's been destroyed through inseparable connection with the cross of Christ. And after a, a statement as triumphant as that was, that your flesh is now dead in Christ, you'd expect a roar of amens, and yet how many of us on a weekly, on a daily basis actually feel like my flesh is dead? Um, how many of us from the moment we left this auditorium last week to the moment we stepped back in it about a half hour ago could proclaim as our testimony, my flesh was put to death this entire week? I know if you're like me, uh, at all, like me, um, don't raise your hand, but you can silently identify with me that this week was not an ideal week for walking in the Spirit. It seems like everywhere we turn, we are faced with temptations that grab a hold of us to which we willingly and, and usually gladly submit. Um, but our life in the Spirit is supposed to be different. But is that even possible? Is it possible to live a life that's free from sin? Is it even possible to live a life that is in the Spirit, where all of our choices are right in step with His, where our hearts are aligned with the heart of God? I have two objectives this morning. The first is to demonstrate from God's Word that God intends for us to be victorious over the sins of our flesh every single time. That is God's intent. All right? That is the goal in that sense. And my second objective is to give you some strategy or some truth from God's Word as to how we actually make that a reality every single time. All right? If it is God's intent, there's a way to get to it. All right? So my plan is to help us out a little bit this morning. Galatians 5, 24 through 26, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is an incredible summary to this incredible chapter. 
Now let's back up to verse 13 where Jordan began this morning, and we'll read through this portion one more time. And what I want to do is just tie in some themes and some sub-themes that we're going to culminate with in verses 24 through 26. Uh, it's hard preaching through a book because every sermon you feel like you have to recap what happened the past few weeks to build back up to where you're at. Uh, it's very important today. We don't always do it, but today it's, it's pretty important. So let's be, begin in uh, Galatians 5 and verse 13 and read what Jordan read earlier together. Uh, just one more time for some context. Galatians 5:13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So remember, this chapter and really the entire epistle to these churches in the region of Galatia is meant to debunk false doctrine that was creeping into the church that said that Christians had to still follow elements of the law that were required back in the Old Testament. And really the key point, it seems, in Galatians is circumcision. It's going back to this physical identity as a Jew, and they were trying to bring that back into the church as a doctrine, as a, as a means of salvation, as a means of living out your faith even though, like he just says, you are, you are free, and you were called to freedom. To require circumcision or any other of the Mosaic law into your salvation is to undermine the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives, uh, and, and to do so to really debunk what the gospel existed for, to save us from our sins, to save us from the curse of the law. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled in one word, namely love. You will love your neighbor as yourself. But if you deny the power and the preeminence of that love in you and you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say rather, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, the Spirit of God gives direction and purpose when we walk by the compass of God's leading. That's why he says walk in the Spirit. Additionally, when we walk by the Spirit, we are able to draw from God's power in every situation. So walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Our sinful flesh and the Holy Spirit are like two magnets with the same polarity. They just don't fit together. That's what Paul's getting at. Our spirit is against God. God is, or our spirit is against the flesh. The flesh is counter to the spirit, and the two can't coexist. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You can't be. It's impossible. Again, that would be to deny the power of the cross, to deny grace, to deny the gospel's power. Now, the works of the flesh are evident in verse 19. In fact, they're extremely evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I can't finish the list, he says. So, things that are like these. Uh, these are all the works of the flesh. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this defines your life, if your life is defined as drunkenness, as orgies, as sexuality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, 
Against such things there is no law. In other words, when, uh, when love and joy and peace and so on are present in the believer, this is the fulfilling of the law. The law, the law is not counter to this. Right? It's not opposed to the fruits of the Spirit. It is fulfilled by them, and in no way can the law become an additional burden. These things are not burdensome. And that brings us to verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that brings us right back to the questions we asked earlier. Is it possible to have victory over the flesh? We know in our future glorified state, we will. But what about now? And it is God's intent now. And I'll be honest with you, this verse has caused me discouragement in the past because it seems like the way it reads is that if you're a believer, if you belong to Jesus, your flesh is crucified and should not affect you anymore. That's how I used to look at this with great discouragement. And yet I'm not sure that's what Paul is saying. Uh, thankfully, uh, I think he's saying something else, and I, I'll explain that here in a second. When Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions, that word crucified is in the active voice. In other words, it is a requirement for us to do constantly. It's an active, um, I shouldn't say a pressure, but it's, an a, it's something that we have to actively do. We have control over that aspect through the power of God. All right? Our flesh is crucified in Christ, yes, but because it's in the active, it's, it's a perpetual occurrence. We have to continually suppress, put to death the power of the flesh. Now back a few chapters in Galatians 2.20, which we covered a few months ago, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this same word for crucified is used right here. But it's used in the passive voice. In other words, at salvation, we were crucified to Christ. That was the result. That's what happened to us as salvation. We became crucified with Christ at salvation. But hear that word's in the active voice. There is still something required of us to put to death the flesh every day as we face temptations, as we face sin on a daily basis. And this makes sense to us. Paul's justification was through faith. Faith plays an incredible amount of play in this. All right? Our faith in God, relying upon God daily for the conquering of the flesh is part of our Christian life. But when it comes to crucifying, the passions, the desires of the flesh, this responsibility we have, look at verse 25. He gives us some help here. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And here is a continuing theme of the Holy Spirit that really works its way all through Galatians chapter 5. Uh, in verse 5, a few weeks ago we read, For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 16, Walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is. And he gives this list, love, joy, peace, and so on. And then verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Probably about this time last year, Pastor embarked on a little mini-series on what it means to abide in Christ. Remember that? What does it mean to abide in Christ and we look closely at passages like John 15. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 11 here in a second. You'll see them on the screen behind me. But I want you to be particularly observant of how much connection is here between the imagery of John 15 when he talks about abiding in Christ and what he says in Galatians 5 
with walking or keeping step with the Spirit. So John 15, verse 4 says, Abide in me. Kind of like walk in the Spirit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, or the works of the flesh, which we just read about, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my works abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full and that, or that you may have joy and that your joy may be full. So we see a lot of parallels here in phrases like abide in me and then walk in the Spirit. Jesus talks about bearing fruit when one abides in him. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit being produced in believers when we walk in the Spirit. Jesus proclaims what will happen to those who do not bear fruit. Paul discusses what doing the works of the flesh will get us. Jesus talks about keeping his commandments. Paul talks about keeping in step with the Spirit. Jesus says to abide in his love that your joy may be full. Paul lists the first two fruits of the Spirit as love and joy. The similarities here are unmistakable. And within a couple chapters of John 15, Jesus says, there is coming a time where I am going to send you the Spirit of God. I will not leave you uh, comfortless. I will not leave you without an aid, without a help. My presence will remain with you, but in the Spirit. And within about 15, 16 years of that promise being fulfilled, now Paul is writing the book of Galatians, and he carries over some of those exact same themes right into Galatians chapter 5. And as Paul often does, he uses military terminology to demonstrate exactly what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, if we're going to keep in step with the Spirit, we have to know what that means. It's like abiding in Christ. We have to know what that means to actually do it, for that to be a part of our lives. In verse 25, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And keeping in step means to be in line with a person who is considered a standard for one's conduct. All right, that's what keeping in step is, to be in line with someone who is considered a standard for one's conduct. So how do we keep in step with the Spirit? I mentioned Paul uses military terminology here. Daniel, I'll ask you if you put the next graphic on the board. So I'm going to walk through what I mean by this. So uh, those of us who are history experts in the room, so I look to, uh, look to Hudson for this. He can correct me if I'm wrong, or Carter maybe. You can let me know if I'm wrong here. But the Romans would fight in what was called a cohort. All right, so here, basically on the screen here, is a Roman cohort, or at least one formation that they would have used as they would do battle. This guy in front here, if you can see that green laser, all right, I'm going to liken him 
to the Holy Spirit and that He is the standard by which everybody behind Him falls in line. Okay, I don't mean to be trite with that, but just for the sake of the picture, keeping in step with the Spirit, He's the one in front and so is the whole, the whole row there in front. And as long as they are dispersed, all right, hang on here, this whole front row, as long as their dispersion is accurate and, and, and they are completely in line with each other, that's what the formation builds itself off of. Everybody else behind them is going to be aligned. And you can't really see it in the graph. You see the first three rows there. They all have their shields up because the back ten rows or so are shooting arrows and throwing spears. All right? Once the enemy begins a volley of fire on them, all of their shields come up. All right? And they are all protected. And so what Paul is saying here, he's using this imagery, is to keep in step with that person in front of you. All right, this front guy, he's the standard. And if you're directly behind him and you are spaced out based on how they are spaced out and your shields are up or down and you're, you're obeying what he's doing, you're going to be fine. You're going to be protected. Uh, you all see the picture where, where all the shields are up. They are kind of like in this turtle shell. All right, they have protection. That's what he's getting at. Now, what this guy right here decides, you know what? I'm going to get out of formation. I'm not going to care to follow this guy in front. I want to get out of step with him. And he goes off and does his own program. Say he steps out two steps to the right. All right, what's going to happen to him? He's, he's now exposed, right? He's in great danger. All right, his shield will only cover so much. He needs the cohort for protection. If you've ever read, is it uh, Kipling, maybe? Whoever, whoever wrote the uh, Jungle Book, the, the, the strength of the wolf is in the pack, the strength of the pack is in the wolf, right? There is safety in numbers. There's safety in doing what you're supposed to do. When you come out of formation and you are out of step with that guy in front of you, you jeopardize your health immensely. But what else do you do? And we spoke in Sunday school with the teens this morning about this. You also jeopardize everybody else in that cohort. All right? Our sins are not private. Our sins affect the entire body. All right? 1 Corinthians makes that very clear. When one member is suffering, all members suffer. And so Paul says we got to keep in step with the Spirit. You need to be aligned with Him in everything that you are doing. Whether or not Paul intends to carry the imagery into the next verse, I'm not sure. But it sure seems like that in that when you leave that formation, your life, your, not your soul, but your life, your spiritual life is, not, is jeopardized. But also those behind you and next to you are also. Look what he says in verse 26. He bring this, brings us now into the uh, more public corporate context. Let us not become conceited, and there are two fruits of that when you become conceited. We'll get to that in a second. But don't allow yourself to be so full of pride and arrogance and vainglory that you leave your position behind the Holy Spirit, that you get out of step with the Holy Spirit. It's as if Paul is saying, quit, quit trying to be a hero. Quit trying to go rogue and, and do some Medal of Honor activity. There's no call for that. Your place is being in step with the Spirit of God. And you must remain there. Look furthermore to what happens when we leave our post and get outside of step with the Holy Spirit, when we become conceited, when we go rogue. There's two results, and they both are focused on others in the cohorts. One, you will start provoking one another, and two, envy will set in. Okay? You see, when we are out of step with the Spirit, our negligence, our negligence affects us, yes, but it also affects everybody else around us. And I can't help but quote Clarence here from one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. But as he's talking to George Bailey towards the end, he says, it's strange, isn't it? 
Each man's life touches so many other lives. And when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? He sums it up very nicely. When we leave our place in our Christian cohort within the church body, our hole that we leave affects so many others. That is why it's so important to keep in step with the Spirit. When we are out of step with the Spirit, we create havoc for everybody else. And really, that ends uh, our portion this morning in the Word as we wrap up Galatians 5. And what I want to do this morning is really take some time and look at some very specific application. Oftentimes, I get done with my sermons, and it's like 1129. I throw out a bunch of application points on the board and say, all right, good luck. <laughs> Uh, We've got some time this morning as we wrap up Galatians 5. uh, Let's spend some time in some application, what it looks like. How do we even walk in the Spirit? What does this look like? How can we influence how we keep in step with the Spirit of God as we live our daily lives? Number one, if you want to live in freedom, the theme of this book, crucify yourself with Christ and put to death your flesh. You've got to put to death your flesh. I've already referenced it once, but Paul says just a couple chapters earlier, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So first, Christ is living in me. And second, my responsibility is to live by faith. As if having the power of God the power of Christ in my life were not enough. My responsibility in freedom is to live by faith. The same faith that saved me is the same faith that saves me daily, is the same faith that is going to save me for all eternity, that will continue with me in my daily life until the end of time. Saves me from sin, saves me from myself, saves me from my passions and desires. And the world will never buy into this, this, this proclamation, into this proposition that, I have, that they have to live by the Spirit of God. This is not for the world. Uh, they will do anything that is counter to that. And they will influence you towards their ends, towards living in the flesh. And oftentimes we look at that and say, I can't have that. I'm a Christian, but I want that. I want what the world has. And yet Paul is saying the opposite. Not having that is freedom. Living in Christ According to God's word, that is freedom. We'll look more at that in a little bit. By grace, through faith, we are raised to walk in newness of life. And that's the truth we get from the crucifixion that happened in Galatians 2. That crucifixion happened to us passively as a result of salvation. We live for Christ. But remember, there's an ongoing battle, an ongoing crucifying that must take place daily in our lives. In Luke 9, Jesus says what? You have to take up my cross daily to follow me. And in Galatians 5, it's as if Paul takes this metaphor a step further. It's as if he says, don't just take up the cross daily, but make sure somewhere along your path that day, the execution actually happens. All right? Make sure you actually crucify yourself, crucify your flesh, so that you are no longer living in its desires. But every day, that crucifixion of our flesh has to happen for us to walk in the Spirit. You might say, now Matt, that doesn't sound very freeing to me. In fact, it sounds downright miserable. Let me ask you to consider the opposite, though. 
who wants to talk about being miserable. The opposite is slavery to sin, right? The opposite is loyalty to the idols that you have erected above God. The opposite is being controlled by every passion and desire of your flesh. The opposite is bondage to the taskmaster of your addiction. And I ask you, does that sound very much like freedom? Does that sound like a life being lived freely from your flesh? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Get off your own efforts. Get out of your legalism. Don't be tied down to anything, but experience the joy of freedom in Christ. Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. If you want to live in freedom, you have to crucify yourself with Christ and put to death your flesh. Number two, if you want to live in freedom, keep in step with the Spirit. In Galatians 5.25, Paul uses an if-then or a since-then construct to get this point across to the churches of Galatia. If or since we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The first clause is salvation. We live by the Spirit. You have been redeemed. You have new life in Christ. If that is the state of your life, is that, if that is your uh, proclamation that you have been saved, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Having the Spirit of God to direct and guide us is part of our identity. And so the first clause, since, we've li- since we live by the Spirit, is a done deal. Uh, we need to then align ourselves behind the Spirit of God in all that we do. This is the basic premise of discipleship. Conformity to the image of Christ. Taking those steps, little by little, to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Easier said than done? Yes, absolutely. Let me give us a few practical pointers here just to get us on our way. Number one, and I say this pretty much every single sermon I preach, start with the Bible. Start with God's Word. The very Word of God that was breathed out by the Spirit of God, who is to be our standard for a living, is God's Word. The Spirit who guides us in all truth is the same Spirit who breathed out these words as holy men of God wrote them down as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right? (laughs) Big time connection here. Begin with the Word of God. I love the way that James words uh, this concept because he uses the same exact word for freedom that is used in Galatians 5. Same word. James says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, all right, that same word in Galatians 5, and perseveres in that law that brings freedom, being not simply a hearer who forgets, but actually is a doer who acts upon what he hears or reads of God's word, this person will be blessed in his doing. Uh, I didn't write down my notes saying that's uh, James 1.25 or somewhere in there. All right? The law of God, the word of God gives liberty. It gives freedom. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, that is when we are in step with the Holy Spirit. And guess what the result of that is? We just heard about the past month or two. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit produces within us when we are walking in accordance with the Word of God. 
That's what it looks like to be in step with the Spirit. He will then produce the fruit in your life that you cannot manufacture on your own. That begins with being in his word, which results in our second point this morning, which is exercise obedience through faith. To walk by the Spirit means to walk by faith and not by sight or by our own efforts. God pours out his Spirit in our lives in response to our faith. Let me recall us back to Galatians 5.5. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The Spirit is the power. Faith is how we open ourselves up to that power. We won't sing the old hymn this morning of trust and obey, but those two words are inseparable when it comes to how we live our lives. Faith and obedience. We obey by faith based on what God has told us to do. James 1, through 24 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face as if in a mirror, but he goes his own way, he forgets what he looked like, he forgets what manner of man he was. All right, it's not enough to just look in the mirror of God's word and say, oh yes, I need, to, I need to correct this, and this, and this, and this. Here's where the obedience comes in. He must also be a doer of God's word. And most of us, a lot of us, have been in church our whole lives. We've heard the word, we've read the word, we know the word. But how much harder is it then to do the word? It's very hard. It's very hard. And yet exercising obedience through faith, obeying God's word, is necessary for keeping in step with the Spirit of God. And then see, seek divine help and wisdom through prayer. What a resource that we just squander, if you're anything like me. A resource. Access to God's throne room 24-7. Access the power of God through prayer. Probably the most two important disciplines that we can Discipline ourselves, too, in our Christian walk is the Word of God, being in it daily, and then prayer. In reading God's Word, we hear from God. We see what God intends for us to see. We have access to truth, objective truth in God's Word. And then in prayer, we have the ability to then pray back to God, to communicate with Him, to express our needs, our concerns, And shockingly, the Spirit of God is active in the prayer life as well. I know that's shocking to hear. But the Spirit of God moves in our prayers. Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. If you are going to keep in step with the Spirit, you must harness the power of God through prayer. And there are many other disciplines and truths that we could discuss here. I'm going to leave it with those three. But these are very tangible ways that we can align ourselves with the Spirit of God in His Word, obeying His Word, and then living a life continually through prayer. Number three this morning, if you want to live in freedom, eradicate the works of the flesh. All right, verses 19 through 21, also verse 26. And I hope by now this is very self-evident. When the works of the flesh and when the power of sin are present and we have welcomed them back into our lives, we will not be in step with the Spirit of God. All right, it's not possible. 
The two are opposed. Look back at Galatians 5 and verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at that list. Do any one of those stand out as particularly detrimental to your relationship with God and your ability to walk in the Spirit? Or if you're like me, are there multiple that you just seem to always struggle with? Paul mentions another work of the flesh in verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, which results in provoking one another and envying one another. I'm quoting John Stott when I say this. This is a very intrusive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinions of ourselves. In other words, when we are consumed with pride and arrogance, exaggerated self-conceptions, setting value on things not really valuable, glorying in the vanity of self, this reflects outwardly in how we treat others. When your agenda is yourself, everyone around you knows it, right? When your selfish ambitions are your guide through life, you are going to leave incredible destruction in your wake. If you don't believe me, believe James. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice, James 3.16. Church, we have got to eradicate the works of the flesh from our lives. If we do not, this church, this assembly, us, will become a self-licking ice cream cone. All right, We will devour ourselves. All right, I get that from Galatians 5.15. You are going to devour yourselves. We will, if we don't eradicate the works of the flesh from our church. It begins with us, each of us. Living by the power of the Spirit is, is not a life of bondage. Okay? It is freeing. You may be the sinner who is trapped on the hamster wheel of doubt and hurt and confusion and slavery to sin and your miserable failing efforts. All right, but there is freedom that in Christ. You might be the legalist who is convinced that you have to measure up to some arbitrary standard of Christian living that in reality is keeping you in bondage to look into the perfect law of liberty, God's word as our standard and keep in step with the Spirit of God in so doing. Maybe you are the hypocrite, and you are insecure 24-7 because you know your secret sins are going to be found out eventually. You know your private life does not at all match your profession of faith in Jesus that you are attempting to portray before others. There is freedom and protection for us and we get back into formation, realigning our lives with the spirit of truth. Hudson Taylor is a well-known missionary. He served in China for upwards of 50 years. And as the case with probably most ministers of the word, most Christians, all Christians, he had ups and downs in his ministry. There were times where he fell under significant pressures, uh, but also anxieties, depression-like where he was at lows in his life. 
he says there was one thing in life that really helped change his mindset and focus on living a life that was fulfilling in Christ. He received a letter one day from a friend of his, and his friend had found this so-called secret of the Christian life, all right? It really is no secret. It's in God's Word. But here's what his friend wrote to him. And he said this was a turning point in his life when he realized the truth of what his friend had written. Here's a letter. Well, it's a part of the letter that was written. To let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding. Abiding. Not striving. Not struggling but looking often to him, trusting God for present power, resting in the love of an almighty Savior, is the joy of a complete salvation from all sin. This is not new to me, he says, and yet, or this is not new, he says, but yet it is new to me. I feel as though the dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have got to the edge only, but of a boundless sea. To have sipped only, but of that which fully satisfied. Christ literally all seems to me now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one seems all that we need. A resting in the loved one entirely for time and for eternity. I hope that one thing was very clear this morning, and that is this, that we are quite hopeless to go this life alone. We don't have the power within us to conquer sin. We need God for that. God, help us to look to our only hope, our only hope. God, we pray that your word would go forth this morning, convict us, of our sin. Convict us of your righteousness. May we look to Christ to find our hope in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.